Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, our next guest is, I'm going to call it the all Big Ten team, undergraduate degree from University of Wisconsin, and then an MBA from Indiana. Greg Hahn, he's the chief CIO of Winthrop Capital Management. Greg, we kind of got a Fed yesterday that kind of threw some, I guess, some uncertainty into this market is talking about uh, maybe being a little bit more hawkish. What did you take away from yesterday's trading and then today's seemingly kind of rebound here on a risk on look? What are your thoughts? Oh, the good old days. We're going back to the good old days because the Fed, the the Fed needs to get in front of inflation. So I think the posturing that we're hearing now is one that um, represents um, more of the committee, the committee's views, and is a little bit more hawkish um, in, in, in reminding investors that, hey, we, we don't have to move in 25 basis point increments. Um, but there's been a reticence, especially with the labor challenges that we were going through last year, to actually message that to investors. We heard a very clear message from the Fed yesterday. We're going to take the steps necessary that we have to to uh, to, to move rates higher to control inflation. And, and Paul, they're going to they're going to implode the economy to do it. That's basically what the message is. That we're, if we have to push the economy uh, into a, a recession, we'll do it. That was the message we took away. We were just talking with our chief rate strategist, Ira Jersey, who's um, pretty sure we will have a recession. He said the question is just what kind of recession are we looking at in 2023? What's your out- what's your outlook? Yeah. Yeah, we've shifted. You know, it's funny because we plan. We, we lay these big plans out at the beginning of the year. Here's our investment themes. And sure enough, we get to March. And Wisconsin's not in the Sweet 16. And I got so I got to change that. We've got to change our outlook on the economy. Uh, it's 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 a whole brutal. But that's what that's what investing is. You just have to shift. You do the next right thing. You can't just stick to your plan and say, okay, I got I'm going to just die on the hill on this. We we've got to be flexible and move. Um, and we saw that with Omicron last year. Um, it are we, we we thought that we'd see this resurgence in growth, but the variant really put um, muted any economic growth that we were expecting. We thought it would get pushed into this year. But the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is going to provide serious dislocation for Europe. So we're going to see inflation. We're going to see a slowdown in Europe. It's going to impact the United States. The, uh, the real issue that we're, we're trying to navigate now is what we've, we've dealt with globalization for over three decades. We're seeing we think we're moving back to the a period where we have trading block block countries where you've got trading arrangements between block countries and the WTO is almost neutered if we if major countries have establish um, privileged trading relationships. So that that may be one of the consequences of the last four years of, of trade issues with China and now with with what we're doing with Russia. All right. So with that backdrop, Greg, what's an investor to do in this rising interest rate <laughs> and inflationary environment? Where do you go? Hold on. So this is this is this is you have to just be patient and hold on. We're, we've had you've got to remind it. Look, we've had three great years in the S&P 500 the average returns in S&P about 22 percent over the last three years. We're giving some of it back. Cash is an, an asset class. So we actually are allocated to cash just to just to be transitional. Um, these are near-term issues. Yes, cash is not keeping up with inflation. We get that. We know that. But it's right now, it's not meant to. It's pres- it's there to preserve capital. At the end of the day, this is a stock picker's market. So we want to make sure that we're in good companies that have good revenue drivers. And um, fixed income is getting a lot more interesting. 
uh, with a two and you know a two twenty on the ten year two twenty five, that that starts to make a lot of sense now. Um, whether they actually push, whether the Fed actually does push it higher. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, what do you think about that? That uh, right now we're looking at two thirty-seven fifty-two. If you can believe oh, it, it, just because it continues to soar, and that's true, really um, across the curve. How yeah. high do we get on the ten-year? So we, I mean, we we uh, so <laughs> we thought two percent would be a buffer just just to get us to this point. I I. I we don't see it going over 3%. The short end is going to go higher, but I think that the posturing, the economy will break. And then if, if I don't think the Fed's really going to risk that. Um, they're for, to really to, We think the mistake that the Fed's going to do is they'll stop it doing just the next right thing, which was the pattern in the 1970s when the Federal Reserve really postponed, really curtailing inflation. It was only going far enough that it had to to get control for that moment, and, and it just kept building up in the system. We think the same thing's going to happen this time. Is the Fed's not going to do enough um, because it will, be, it will be politically unpopular. And who buys the tenure here when you get uh, more for buying threes, fives, and sevens? You know, yeah. <laughs> who, yep. who says I want two thirty-seven and for at ten when you can get two four forty-one at, at seven? Doesn't make any sense. Well, it, the sad the sad answer to that is that a lot of 401ks and index funds are are are, are pegged to the uh, yeah. to the aggregate index, which re- is required to buy the ten years. So I knew before I asked well, the question, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. No, no, I get it. <laughs> the theory uh, works. Yeah, it just seems um, if you break it down to the most elementary uh, terms, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah. All right, Greg, we appreciate you coming on here, Greg Hahn, CIO of Winthrop Capital Management, giving us his his thoughts on the market. And again seems like a consensus is kind of building here for some type of recessionary uh, environment in 2023. Uh, that's kind of new, I mean, in the last week well, or two. Well, certainly since uh, Jerome Powell went on yep. with Constance Hunter yet, yesterday and said, you know, the buck stops here. By the way, uh, we should wish Greg and Wisconsin best of luck for next year. We should? Yeah. Okay, great. There's a basketball tournament every year, right? Okay, good. Yeah. All right. The Duke Invitational, I call it. You know, I got my uh, my last car that I had to sell because I was moving back here, and you can't um, import German cars from uh, into Tell the U.S. I made twenty five percent. I drove it for two years. I put thirty thousand miles on it, and I made a twenty five percent profit. Nice when I sold it. Nice, good for you. It's the only time I've ever made money on a vehicle. Car trader. All right, let's see. You can put some money in the stock market today. You do pretty well. The S and P's up one percent. Nasdaq's up. 2%. Robert Teeter, Head of Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest Asset Management, joins us. Robert, I'm not sure if I should go into the used car business or stick with my stock portfolio. What are you telling your clients? <laughs> well, both have been pretty compelling uh, over, the, over the past year or so. Uh, that stat on the, on the grain spreader and the used autos are pretty interesting. <laughs> although I, I do think some of the used auto sales are slowing down a little bit. So I'd, I'd say stick with stocks. This has been a, a pretty challenging environment, but we do think there's a strong undercurrent of earnings growth uh, that's likely to lead the way towards gains over the next year or two. But is that, I mean, with double-digit inflation surely on the way, um, and a Fed that is now ready to hike 50 basis points at multiple meetings, are you not concerned that this economic growth is going to slow to a halt? 
Well, I, I think that's that's been part of the challenge that uh, markets have been working through here with this choppiness of late, which has been that there is a deceleration in growth, um, but I'm not in the camp of, of recession. I do think there's strong underlying growth to come, uh, partly driven by COVID recovery and jobs recovery. And so I do think that will continue. And while you will get a bit of the, the energy cost tax on consumers that might slow the top line rate of growth a little bit, uh, there is still strong earnings growth, and companies have been navigating uh, this economy very well to deliver on those earnings in the in the face of a lot of challenges in the past year. So My concern is just this, uh, Robert, that we have a Federal Reserve um, now. I don't want to use the term hell bent, but I can't think of a less aggressive yeah, I don't think term. Matt Winkler would go for that one. Hell bent on slowing demand. At the same time, we're about to see a bounce back in production and then inventories, right? Yeah, I, I do think that's right. I think that some of the comments by Powell, I think, have been uh, incorporated or, or evaluated in a, in a fairly optimistic way, and that's what we're seeing in terms of the, the green on the screen today, because he has become and communicated an appropriately serious message against inflation. And so I think that that burst of activity that we had from, from post-COVID uh, has led to a lot of the inflation. I think he's committed to fighting that now. Um, but I do think that part of the outcome of him being a bit stronger is that you won't see inflation expectations in the outer years uh, continue to rise. And that, I think, will be positive for investors and for valuations. So, Robert, you mentioned uh, profitability, earnings a couple of times. How concerned are you about inflation pressuring uh, profit margins in corporate America? Yeah, I do think that's the, that's the really important question. And I think in some areas it will pressure a bit. Um, we've been of the mind that this market has been one where you need to be very highly selective. Uh, it lends itself very well, we think, to stock selection because different companies are, are having different degrees of success in managing through those supply chain problems and labor cost issues. By and large, when we've looked at the Russell 1000 overall, margins have been very strong, uh, improving somewhat, but it's not a uniform picture beneath the surface. And so we do think it's important uh, to focus your opportunities on where companies are managing to the problems and delivering on earnings. Yeah, and, and like we've been seeing today, if they deal with the supply chain issues well, they are rewarded. Um, who do you think is best positioned? Yeah, well, we think that uh, the technology sector, which has seen consistently strong earnings and actually seen estimates go up a bit at the beginning of this year, um, is one area. I do think there are some segments in consumer, even though consumer earning estimates have come down a bit, there's still pretty strong consumer demand in some areas. And then I think a few of the cyclical areas might still have a few innings left of, of growth. So we think it's important to be diversified here and, again, really focus on which companies are getting the job done at the micro level. And I think that's really the theme here. Macro has been dominating, and we think it's going to shift back to micro. Micro, um, when I think growth, I guess I've just been conditioned over the last 10 or 20 years to think tech. But can tech perform in a rising interest rate environment? I think it can. I think the classic uh, wisdom, like you say, is rates higher is not necessarily good for multiples, and I think that's true. Um, however, we have to consider the starting point as well. So rates are still pretty low. Uh, Pre-COVID, we were around 2%. 2018, we were around 3%. Uh, we're in the mid-twos now. We think that could drift a little bit higher. Um, I think multiples can handle that as long as we have this uh, runway for growth in front of us in terms of outlook for earnings. And again, earnings estimates have been going up in some, uh, some sectors, and so we think that will help support multiples also. All right. So um, in terms of fixed income, what do you say? Just stay away? Well, we say stay conservative. So not a lot of duration, so not a lot of interest rate risk. 
Um, be very careful on the credit selection side. It's not an environment to be scraping for a few extra basis points here and there. Use fixed income for what it's meant to be, safe and secure, a part of your portfolio that if you hold it to maturity, it delivers at par uh, and helps protect you against some of the chop inequities. All right, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate your perspective there. Robert Teeter, he's head of Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest uh, Asset Management. Kind of up and down Lexington Avenue here in Midtown, a lot of empty stores, big stores, big box stores, smaller stores, and really gets you thinking about not just in New York City, but just kind of across the United States, how this commercial and uh, industrial real estate market's going to play out here. Fortunately, we have an expert here who can walk us through it. John Mace, he's the CEO of IRG Industrial. John, love to get your just your 30,000-foot overview of how the last two years have impacted the commercial and industrial real estate space here in the U.S.? Uh, sure. The last two years on the industrial space has been pretty spectacular. Rates have risen virtually every market in the country. Some of the major markets are up 25, 30, even 35%. Most even of the smaller, minor markets in industrial are up about 20%. So although we're seeing inflation affecting us, it's primarily in being able to rehab buildings that we bought or new construction where it's more expensive to build as well as taking longer. Particularly, uh, one issue we face is we get tenants that are ready to move into our buildings, but we can't deliver the building because some of our delays due to supply constraints are six months, even nine months, and everyone's standing on the sidelines waiting for the materials to come in so we can fix them up. Otherwise, uh, rental rates are up significantly, and there, there still is a, a large difference between office space and industrial space. I mean, we could talk about office space for you know extensively, but we're primarily in the industrial sector. What, so, how do you differentiate those two? Yeah, office space are primarily for people who are service providers or other office people who actually go to an office and have office space, primarily in either in the major cities or suburban office. Where industrial space is big, large spaces, uh, trucking, manufacturing distribution, e-commerce, rates are usually a lot cheaper for industrial space than they are for office. There's fewer jobs, um, and it, it's more for storage or for manufacturing. Big difference between the two. John, is there industrial, uh, I mean, is there um, a geographical impact on your business? Are you seeing greater growth in, everybody, it seems like everybody's going down to Texas and Florida. Is that where you're seeing demand for industrial space, or is industrial space pretty much across the board? I'm going to say industrial spaces across the board. However, there are certain markets that are significantly stronger than others. And I'd have to say the greater Seattle area, San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles and the Inland Empire, and then probably central Jersey right outside of, of New York are the You're strongest right. industrial. And I see all those trucks. There are millions of them, prime trucks and these warehouses right along the parkway. Well, the port, the the port must have a huge yeah. uh, a, a amount of pull there. Yeah, so it's interesting, John. I mean, is this does you know Amazon come to you and say I need a warehouse in Central Jersey? Is that how it works? Well, Amazon does one of two things: they either buy the land and build their own, or they go find a great location and they work a deal with a developer to build their their brand new state of the art warehouse. And we've done both. 
We've sold some land to them that they've built on, and we've also um, uh, leased some of our land that we built for them. But most of what they want is the best, brand new, best location, the best, and they're willing to pay for it. But there's a lot of other people out there besides Amazon. There's a lot of onshoring where manufacturing Mm. is coming back. So a lot of our our properties, particularly in the Midwest, in Ohio, Indiana, uh, Illinois, and Michigan area, I mean, a lot of manufacturing going on. That's been really, really stable for us. So I I wonder if you see, you know, in commercial, in office space, um, I was reading this morning on the Bloomberg that it used to be Manhattan had 11% of all of the national office Mm -hmm. square footage, which is just massive if you think about it. But that's not going to be the same going forward is the concern, you know, as people um, gravitate more, uh, well, away from the urban centers for, for office work into um, the suburbs. Do you see that kind of shift with industrial space as well? No, not really. I mean, what we are seeing, though, is that there's a greater demand for the better locations. Before, people were willing to drive an extra half hour, hour outside of the major urban area, uh, considering the truck expenses of driving the trucks and gas was not a big deal. Now it is a bigger deal. Therefore, they're willing to pay more money and higher rents in order to be closer to the urban inner areas. It's what's commonly referred to as last mile. So, John, interest rates are going up maybe pretty dramatically. How's that impact your business? It certainly does. Um, Interest rates going up. I mean, our cost of capital is a critical element of what we do. Um, We know interest rates are going up. Matter of fact, the yield curve is flattening a bit, which is never great for the economy. But generally, if you have a good quality building, 2%, 3% interest rates are traditionally very, very low rates. We should be able to make it through even as, as rates increase. But what also happens is as interest rates increase, cap rates often increase. And when a capitalization rate increases, the value of the property declines. So it's it's cyclical. I've been through about four or five major cycles. Hopefully we're not having another one right now. But interest rates is definitely a factor in our business. Now, on the other side, as inflation goes up, right. um, uh, cost of goods goes up, rents go up. So you just have to hope that the two balance out each other. Right. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. John May, CEO of IRG Industrial. I want to get to our next guest, Valerie Ayakovenko, uh, founder and CEO of Drone UA, based in Ukraine. Valerie, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to call in and share some time with us. Talk to us about your company, Drone UA. What is it, and how has your company been impacted by the last month with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia? Pleasure to be with you today. Um, and actually, uh, the drone UA company is a technological company, the robotics company that was supposed to work only in industrial spheres using drones and robots to help uh, our manufacturing possibilities to, to be smarter, more efficient, to grow more food on Ukrainian fields, to get better yields to provide more safer work experience for any industrial employee. But uh, when the war started, almost everything changed. Before it was, uh, we were like uh, collaborating with officials, with Minister of Defense, with different police uh, departments, etc. It was a part of our business, but right now it's multiplied. 
several, I think, I think hundreds of times since all our attention and this is about not only us, this is about every Ukrainian person. So Valerie, just to be clear, you, you make drones that were typically uh, mostly recreational or industrial. You were working a little bit with um, police, but non-military. And now you've been drawn in to the fight to try and beef up Ukrainian intelligence. This is correct, and this is about all com all companies and all specialists on Ukrainian market. Uh, since we need intelligence, since we need to find enemy troops, everybody is joining forces to help with intel, to file with to help with surveillance, finding enemy troops, finding enemy tanks, finding diversions and saboteurs group all around Ukraine. This is not about only frontline in Ukraine or some special regions. This is about everywhere. Drones are right now as uh, are working as a tool uh, to provide intelligence to our Minister of Defense and to defend our country. So, Valerie, give us a sense of the, the drone force in Ukraine right now. Does Ukraine have enough drones or does it need more? And where would you get them? First of all, you have to understand that there are two types of drones that are being used right now in Ukraine. The first one is small, hobby-like, uh, looking like uh, drones that you can purchase actually in almost every IRC store, and they are useful. They are useful to provide information for the military and defensive military operations in Ukraine. But And uh, there are a lot of them, like thousands of drones are working right now for the Ministry of Defense purposes to provide intelligence. And the second part of drones is uh, like military drones that was designed to provide strikes from the sky, not only ice, but also some kind of power to make an action against uh, Russian military troops that are invading Russia, Ukrainian peaceful cities. So basically, the second part is mostly well, uh, well known by Bayraktars, the Turkish drones that are being supplied to Ukraine. And uh, there are a lot of them, but there are not enough to cover all necessity of Ukrainian defense. We need more drones, all kinds of drones. And surveillance and hobby like, yes, we need them. Uh, we are in lack of uh, thermal imagery cameras and thermal imagery drones to help uh, our defenders and uh, during the night. But of course, we need more intelligent weapons in Ukraine to provide defend uh, and strikes uh, to the troops that are staying here or attacking us. How, Basically, how, how Valerie, how is the war going right now? How is the defense effort shaping up? How have the Russian aggressors, how far have they progressed? First of all, uh, uh, all you know that all ideas of Russian from Russian side was to make a blitzkrieg to conquer Ukraine in just days or several hours, but there is almost a month during start uh, after start of the war, and Ukrainians are not going anywhere. They will defend our own country. We will defend our land, and. Uh, no matter what is happening, we will stay on our land and defend. Right now, uh, uh, Russia is in front in, in countering extremely high um, like defense potential from Ukrainian soldiers and even Ukrainian citizens, since nobody wants Russian peace, as they call it, on Ukrainian land. So uh, there is a defense. But unfortunately, 
there are no safe places in Ukraine. No matter which region you are staying, uh, rockets are coming all over Ukraine in every city, in every region, since we don't have like a closed sky upon Ukraine. So there are no safe houses, no safe cities. You have, we hear every day at least three times the sirens that are uh, asking us to go underground because the strike is coming on. And this is happening everywhere. On all territory of Ukraine, we are going down to uh, to, 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 to defend against possible miss- missile strikes uh, from Russia to Ukraine. Uh, about ground forces of Russia, well, there is uh, always a battles, but uh, intensity of it has lowered. Uh, but uh, we have really high risk areas such as Mariupol that or Kharkiv and those cities are being suffered from the uh, strikes from the Russian side that it's actually destroying the city almost to the ground. Valerie, I'm afraid- what, 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 what's the feeling in Ukraine about how this may progress? Is this going to be a siege type of situation? Are you guys preparing for the long term? What's the feeling within Ukraine? Uh, first of all, you have to understand that every Ukrainian thinks that this war is won. Right now, we, we won this war. We didn't, wow. uh, we, we, we didn't, didn't die. We didn't go anywhere. Uh, we understand that right now we are just bergging uh, the most, uh, the better conditions from Russia's side. Unfortunately, because they just have to leave and leave uh, Ukrainian territories to Ukraine. But unfortunately, the Russia doesn't have the possibility to do this. I think that uh, this war will will come over since the Russia as empire will self-destruct. Uh, we we have showed to the world that Russia is not power so powerful that it was they was like uh, pretending to be uh, and Russians from inside they started to see that actually uh, the aggressor are they yeah. not Ukraine that we are yeah. just defending defending our democracy and freedom and this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine this is a war between civilized world the Europe. Yes. And Russia. All right, Valerie, thank you very much for giving us your time. Uh, We really appreciate it. I wish we had some more time, but Valerie Ayakovenko. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.